You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. B2B SaaS is a very formulaic industry. If you really think about it, almost every company sounds the same, they look the same, they have the same website and the same go-to-market playbook. But every now and then a company decides to do things a little bit differently. They don't just follow the steps that everyone else runs and that VCs expect, they innovate. And I'm fascinated by these examples because sometimes it's in these moments of originality and creative thinking that we see the playbooks of tomorrow emerging. So HockeyStack is one of these companies. For me, they make a software for B2B attribution, which is a category I follow pretty closely. And perhaps 10 months ago, maybe more, they just sort of burst into my LinkedIn feed with content that is original and interesting and generating a lot of attention. And they're also quite transparent about their effort to build a different type of go-to-market strategy. So it's been really cool to watch that unfold. And I wanted to go deeper behind the scenes on HockeyStack, the company, and the product. And so I reached out to Amir Atli, who is Chief Revenue Officer and Co-Founder at HockeyStack, and he was good enough to agree to spend some time with me. So Amir, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the kind words, Justin. Really appreciate it. Excited to chat more. Awesome. So like I said, you know, HockeyStack just kind of like appeared. I felt really surrounded by it, which is a, a really good thing. But I don't know a lot about how you founded the company, where it comes from. Maybe you can just walk us through that. Yeah, the name comes from HockeyStick Growth. HockeyStick.com was taken by a HockeyStick company. So we went with HockeyStack. This was a problem that we had before HockeyStack, kind of like understanding the customer journey. And we were experiencing it more. We had a mobile app and we were experiencing it in our mobile app, kind of like post signup. And we developed a product analytics software. And through time, by pivoting and by talking to more people after two or three pivots, we landed on revenue attribution for B2B companies. In about a year, hundreds of marketers started using this tool. Our kind of plan was shaking up the attribution category a little bit because it's not been innovating for a very long time ever since Visible. We landed a few big customers, raised a new round a couple months ago, and then we went with the GTM analytics category because our main goal is to bring sales team into the product as well. Recently, we introduced a new feature set, which I think you saw, marketing, smiling, forecasting, budget optimization, together with repositioning into GTM analytics category. You mentioned very accurately that the category hasn't evolved a ton. I mean, I started using Visible maybe back in 2015. It was the only tool at the time that kind of did. I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC, that's K-N-A-K, and get a special offer just for my listeners. From soup to nuts in terms of collecting the data, first party data on the front end, doing the modeling, presenting it to you. But then, it, of course, like all companies seem to do when they get acquired, it sort of stopped and stagnated. What did you see that you could disrupt within that category? The first thing was, say, if we take a few steps back, it was like before Visible, there was just like first touch and last touch, and then Visible came up. They introduced multi-touch attribution models. 
But the problem is visible depends on Salesforce campaigns and Salesforce's setup. And most companies don't have the best setup for Salesforce. And then visible depends on Salesforce and visible. The only reason that you get visible is to clean the data so that you can understand what's working, what's not working. And it depends on Salesforce, so it's messy data. So the first thing was not depending on Salesforce so that we can get the Salesforce campaigns, but we can also attribute revenue towards everything. The second thing was setup process. Visible takes months to implement. And even after that, it's still hard to use. Akisak takes a few minutes to integrate with all of your tools and then two weeks to onboard completely. And the third thing was additional touch points like impressions from ad platforms so that we can complete the customer journey. Then I take a look at the reason why people buy tools like Akisak. It's mainly two reasons. One, proving contribution. And the second thing is optimizing. So for the first thing, even if you innovate, it's not the place where you can innovate the most, but the optimization part is, in my opinion, where we could innovate a little bit more. So we innovated in that. In the way that people can optimize their campaigns using HockeySack, time to value those areas we innovated. In about a year, we had success in shaking things up in this category, reached a lot of customers, and then just pivoted. Because the problem with attribution, it has a bad reputation, so it's harder to sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that from the start. So yeah, the feature for HockeySack is going to be turning data into revenue with automations starting in January so that we can actually put that data into work. Maybe let's just talk a little bit about your go-to-market strategy. One of the things I've really enjoyed following you on LinkedIn is you're very open and transparent about being intentional in designing your go-to-market, how your funnel works. You seem to be really punching kind of above your weight class in terms of the size of the team you have and the results that you're able to achieve. Can you walk us through what you're doing and, and maybe how it differs a bit from the traditional SaaS playbook? So from the start, LinkedIn has been super important for us. We focused on LinkedIn heavily. Our goal was to dominate LinkedIn and then move to other platforms, diversify our marketing strategy a little bit more. So from the start, me and my co-founder, we started posting every single day, sometimes twice a day, and started gaining momentum that way, started getting followers. And then we started adding more people, like Obed, our head of content, to our head of product marketing, sales, engineering. And for our GTM team, especially our marketing and sales teams, my first interview question is, are you open to posting on LinkedIn regularly if you have the resources available? And it's critical for me because I think every single GTM member should bring in revenue, not just a sales team. So our kind of approach was the best quality content at the highest quantity. And we started posting regularly. The way that we do it is Every single person on our team has different personalities. So, for example, I'm more on the executive side. I'm managing our marketing and sales. And Obed is more on the creative marketing side. Drew is more head of product marketing and more like measurement side. And I think what we do differently is when people say brand awareness, they mean that every single person in our industry should know about us. And when you see companies like Apollo with incredible budgets, with like a social team of 10 people and everyone knows about Apollo, but not everyone knows what Apollo does. Even if people know what Apollo does, they don't know what's, dif- what's the difference between Apollo and Zoom Info. No one, no one knows. So my approach was we need to be efficient. If most people know about us, that's good, but I, I would prefer less people know about us, but they would know what we are doing and what's the difference between HockeySec and Visible and other platforms. We took a look at our previous content And I saw that brand awareness actually means making marketers smarter. Our educational content outperforms any other type of content because people log into LinkedIn to learn. We kind of decided that we need to make marketers smarter in marketing and measurement. 
So I'm kind of posting about how we are doing marketing and what are the business results and how can you communicate those results to your CEO and CMO or with your board because I'm more on the executive side. People expect me to talk about that. And then Obed is head of content. He's talking about how can you be more creative? How can you do better marketing? And Drew is talking about how can you be better at measurement? So we have this personalities that people expect to see. And we have a content calendar shared with everyone on the team. And then we have the flow where we host all of our content, which I think we will talk more. It's our media company. It's like a Netflix for PDB marketers. And then we have Hockey Sack Academy. So basically we create content at the high quantity, high quality. And then we store these content pieces in different places like Hockey Sack Academy and the flow. And then be distributed across our social channels. And if we engage with the audience. And this approach reminds me a lot of the kind of demand creation methodology that Chris Walker from Refine Labs has really popularized over the past few years. Were you guys influenced by him or is this just an approach that you came to independently? I'm a big fan of Chris. Chat a lot of times. We had dinner in San Francisco. Chris is amazing, but I think we have some differences in our approach. I'm sure we got influenced as like any other pe- person. I think every, uh, everybody on LinkedIn has been influenced by Chris in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think we got inspired probably. And then we like changed a few pieces and built our own playbook. Talking a bit about your content, and you mentioned about a few times, he's somebody else on your team that I just see all the time on LinkedIn. He, <laughs> It has almost a... I don't know if he would think of it this way or if you think of it this way, but I think of it kind of like a like a Gen Z approach to content. Like it's got a lot of memes, it's got a lot of like video game references, it's fun, it has music. Is that, a, is that just him yeah. and his personality or is that a deliberate strategy that you pursue? It's his personality. I bet our head of content is an exceptional talent that I'm really proud to have on our team. It's his personality. Yeah, I think like our approach has been blending in our personalities and then finding the balance between entertainment and education. We have different series on the flow that we collaborate with other marketers. So if we collaborate with other marketers, we don't talk about hockey sack at all. But then if we do five series that doesn't talk about hockey sack, but still educate the marketers, then we do one series about hockey sack that we can distribute. Sometimes we struggle to find this balance, honestly, but usually we're pretty good at finding the balance and letting people know what we do in creative ways. And you mentioned the flow a few times and I looked at it and I think your description and Netflix for marketers is pretty accurate. It's really nice experience. It's got all sorts of shows and content, which like I think is amazing. What What's the incentive for these other creators to work with you on this platform? I think it's mostly being part of something new. There's also, we paid them per episode, but it's not nothing huge, but I think they want to be part of something new. They want to create content with other marketers and they also get good brand awareness. We got a couple of consultants and agency owners, people like that who said they got really good business after they started a series. So it's a bunch of things, but what I hear from most of them is they want to be a part of the flow. Shifting gears a little bit into the sales side of things, I was just looking as I was preparing for this at some of your LinkedIn posts and some of the things that you shared, which I thought were really interesting. One of them was you have your interactive demo and that interactive demo is kind of like this anchor of your sales funnel. And then another one was that you've really worked hard on fine-tuning your sales process. Quote you here, you wanted to make it a differentiator. You worked on it for dozens of hours, perfected each follow-up evil, every inch of your digital sales room and every second of your demo calls. You really were intentional about getting that process tight, which is awesome. Tell me like about what that looks like. So our interactive demo, we built it 
when we first launched. We built it ourselves. We still maintain it. It's our own code. We built it every single part of it ourselves. We don't re- we don't rely on any other tool. And I have strong opinions about this. So the sales process, we are almost 100% inbound. We got some outbound too, but it's mostly from like people who engage with our live demo. We send emails, we book demos that way. But we have a significant spend on ad platforms, LinkedIn ads, Google ads. We're spending a lot on those platforms and we have social going on. So people enter the website, they usually look at our live demo and then from live demo, they contact sales and then get to our sales team, sometimes gets to me. And the first call is usually four to five minutes. We do like a discovery, not the boring type for the half of it. And then we do product demo. And then we have a digital sales and we are using doc.us. And then we usually take a consultative approach. So our goal last quarter for the last two quarters has been to make our sales team a consultant rather than a salesperson. So our goal is to sell before the sales call so that our sales team don't need to force people to book the second call, don't need to kind of like force people to buy. They just need to answer a few questions, specifics. How does it work with our setup? How does it work with our Salesforce instance? Does it integrate with this platform? Kind of like being a consultant, really. And then we send that digital sales room where they can find every single information they need from customer case studies to recap the demo call according to book another call. You can just do it there. So we are kind of like minimizing the time you spend with us because I know from my own experience, I got a lot of tools. I need to do it at my own pace. I don't need to adopt to a salesperson's or sales team's pace. I don't need to adopt my pace to your quarterly pipeline goals or like your pricing changes, whatever you want to force me to do. So I know that and buyer kind of controls the sales cycle. Of course, there are areas that we can control the sales cycle and we do them too. But like perfecting our digital sales room has been a massive advantage. And then the other thing was perfecting our live demo. We did a lot of tests, both on platforms like Winter and on our demo calls and we know what's driving revenue on our live demo and about 75 to 80% of demo requests first check out live demo and then contact sales so they have a pretty kind of like a rough idea of what we do and what they're going to see in the demo and then after that it's usually they sometimes book a second call sometimes more technical and then go through with that so how we approach differentiating our sales call quite honestly Two or three hires that I made, I made them a list. I didn't share this anywhere publicly, but I made them a list of competitors. I said, you're going to join in two weeks. Schedule a call with all of these competitors. Send me the recordings and tell me what you think about the demo. And ask how are they different from Hockey Stack and a bunch of other questions like that. And they all did that. And then when I watched them, it's like, if we can make our sales process a little bit different, that's a huge advantage for us. Because honestly, analytics products, attribution platforms, demos really are boring. So something else that we do is we are showing the customer's journey on the demo. So we just like log into our own instance of Hockey Stack and show you what you have been doing on our website and the other people on your team's journeys. So we do stuff like this to differentiate our sales process a little bit more to win deals. And are you collecting like 100% of people that I would call hand raisers, like people that have requested a demo, or are you collecting lower intent leads as well in various ways? No, we intentionally, I think I did a post about this two weeks ago, we intentionally reduced our pipeline by 50% over the last two months. We have a strict ICP kind of like checklist. We look at employee size, we look at marketing team size, we look at operations team size because it's super important for us. And then we look at spend and total number of leads per month on average. 
and then we accept the request that way. So we reject about half of our demo requests per month. And if people are watching on the flow, let's say, do they become known to you in some way or is all of that top of the funnel activity remain anonymous and you're okay with that until such time as they decide to request the demo? If they subscribe or if they, so we have a couple of gated content, if they enter the email addresses in anywhere and they are identified. For Flow, we are also planning on launching LinkedIn login so that people can log in and then comment on episodes. Got it. Moving kind of linearly through your funnel into the post-sales part, what does that implementation process look like for you? Backstory here, I mean, I was a visible consultant for a long time, so I kind of know what that, you mentioned the process of implementing visible. Mm-hmm. I know what that looks like. Curious what it looks like for hockey stack. Yeah, right now you create an account, you integrate with your platforms, all the integrations are one-click native integrations. So you need an admin to log into Salesforce, log into market, give us permission. In about a day, we pull in the last two years of data and then we match all the lifecycle stages to your lifecycle stages, your campaigns, that's totally on us. And then we have a call with your operations people to review lifecycle stages and then to ask if there's anything else we need to be careful about. Sometimes people store financial data on Snowflake, value data points on their CRM, if there's anything like that and if there's any other funnels that we need to be aware of. And then after that, in about a week to 10 days, we prepare all the initial dashboards and we do a session to show them how they can find their properties, how they can build a report themselves because Hakizak also have a no-code dashboard builder. Most of our customers are getting onboard in two weeks, sometimes shorter, but in about two weeks, we expect you to be completely onboarded with initial 10 or so dashboards and the user training. And you have a Slack channel and recurring customer success goals if you want. And so you have a CS team, like let's say I signed up, would my company be assigned an individual CS person? Yeah. And have you thought that through as well in a, in a similar way of trying to be differentiated? Kind of a backstory to that question is in doing these sorts of implementations, you can do a lot of work, you know, prepping the data, getting the data clean, building taxonomy, building out a system, trying to make it as bulletproof as possible. And then you often, I found at least, show dashboards to execs or people on the team and they're kind of like, ah... Yeah, actually, like they think they what they think they want is not always what they actually want or what they think they want is not always actually that useful to them once they get it. They're not sure what to do with it. Is this something that you've seen? How do you circumvent that problem if you have? Yeah, if I take a couple of steps back, I think right now we are winning about 95, 96% of our competitive deals against Visible and a few other competitors, mainly with our dashboard builder because people, as I see, don't want to be trapped into templates. They want to build it themselves. They want to change models, change columns, build a report themselves, change, I don't know, the time range, conversion windows, everything. They want to be able to do that. So we built a no-code dashboard builder where anyone can build a report without any technical knowledge and everything is customizable. So that was one part. And then the other part was what I see from our customer interviews and post-sales interviews. Most people say that they see us as a strategic partner, not just a vendor. They will be with them throughout their journey. Because as companies grow, their marketing gets diversified. As their marketing gets diversified, their measurement needs grow as well. So they need a partner that they're not gonna outgrow and they will be with them throughout that journey. It can be a customer success team, it can be a technical team. So totally, we see customer success as a differentiator and we see these core features as differentiators as well. Drilling in a little bit, and I hope you don't mind if I just go into the weeds here, because I like to do that. But on the data side, this is often where these 
projects live or die from my point of view. You're sucking in data, you know, it has a certain structure to it, but there's lots of problems. Stitching identities together across platforms, campaigns that may not be normalized, opportunities that don't have contact roles. I mean, there's a million things I'm sure that you've run into. Do you have some kind of engine under the hood that is taking all that together and stitching it into a whole or how have you looked at solving that problem? Yeah, so one of the unique value propositions is we clean all of the data and we stitch the data on our backend like our secret sauce. So we have a data structure that's associating leads to accounts. Accounts to account activity leads to lead activity and together an account-based journey. And then all of the reports depend on that account structure. So even if, for example, a person is not associated with an account or with an opportunity, but they visit the website and we're able to identify them with reverse IP or with an email, we still associate that lead to that opportunity on Archistack. So it's like, getting the data, cleaning the data, and normalizing it so that we can make sense of the data. And talking about customer journey, it's interesting that you can take an individual customer journey and everybody really likes it. You say, oh, look, here's Acme, and they bought our stuff, and there was these five people involved, and here's the eBooks that they downloaded, and here's the events that they intended, and then they won. And everyone's just like, that is fascinating. They really eat that up. And the challenge becomes when Mm -hmm. you start layering those journeys on top of each other, after like two, you really can't draw very many meaningful conclusions anymore. Like it starts to just become a soup. How do you think about that problem? Like where do you guide people to say, here's how we should actually interpret this data to make better decisions? Yeah, this is one of our key priorities in Q1 with HockeyStack Academy's measurement side. I think there's a big gap in the market in the way that people need to know and learn better how to optimize and how to look at the data to tell stories. The number one thing that I hear on demo calls is I'm looking to get a tool so that I can tell better stories. So I would look at organic acquisition, paid acquisition as two separate, and then an overview report that will get everything. What we do is we are looking at these reports with multi-touch attribution models, and then we kind of can see the common touch points. But then the problem with attribution models is they just get the entire credit divided into total number of touch points, so some touch point might not be really valuable. And then if you look at incrementality reports that we have on HockeyStack to see kind of like the incremental revenue influence of different touch points. And then a combination of those two things give me the understanding of what really is working. So I think that's challenging, but also it comes from kind of like the incentives that people get. So to like people want to tell stories so that a team can get incentivized or they can just like prove contribution. So if you can ignore that part for a little bit and then take a look at what actually is working, I think you can optimize and you can get better results so that you don't need to tell those stories that often. Like, yeah, it's great to try to justify that you were doing something or that it worked, but ultimately what people want to do is make decisions that actually make the business more money. I don't know if it's yeah. a, there's an easy way to do it in the format of this discussion, but is there a way to just make that like a bit more crystallized or more concrete for listeners on like what that would actually look like? What's like an example of looking at this data and then something that you can actually do differently to drive more revenue, more impact, whatever it is that marketer is trying to do? So you can see how much you're spending on different channels and what percentage of your budget goes to these channels versus how many deals or like the total number of total deal value that's being influenced by these channels. You can look at for example, brand keywords and their incremental revenue influence. So we compare in cohorts if people click on those links and then create deals or if they don't click on those links and then still create deals so that you can see incremental reports that way. 
on the organic acquisition side, we are looking at pages, individual pages, time spent on those pages and how they bring in revenue. And the number one thing that we are using is we have a funnel that's showing us baseline conversion rate. So if people go from the website landing page to pricing page and contact sales page, what's the conversion rate of that funnel baseline? And if we look at the people enter the live demo, what's the baseline conversion rate influence? If they enter the flow, if they engage with a couple of series, if they spend more than a minute on the flow, what's the baseline conversion rate influence? We make decisions that way. Then something that we noticed is pricing page and contact sales page on most SaaS companies' websites and ours included, they're pretty, pretty much very similar. Contact sales page also have pricing. There's a form pricing page as pricing. But you can also click on a button and then get directed to contact sales page. We found out that our pricing page isn't really converting. There's like a 5x difference between our contact sales page and pricing page. But I would assume that pricing page is also a high intent page, right? So most people retarget pricing page views. So when I thought about it, most people probably see the pricing page as another type of content. They're just interested. So we are redesigning our pricing page to give more value rather than just like saying these are our prices. This is the baseline price, this is the end price plan. So this kind of different reporting, I'm talking about our own like analytics. But to summarize, most of our customers use one dashboard for paid acquisition, one dashboard for organic acquisition, one dashboard for marketing overview. And if they are doing ABM, there's like a sales versus marketing penetration rate based on accounts. How uh, different accounts are engaging with the brand. Those are the main reports that I see from our customers. And also channel-based reports, like how much we're spending on Google versus LinkedIn. That's the average sales cycle from this platform. And you mentioned incrementality a few times. Could you define that? Like, what does that mean in this context? Yeah, incrementality is, so attribution models gives you a direction. So you can see if you close a million dollar deal and there are like 100 different touch points, it divides million dollars by 100 and then gives you these are the credit that these touch points should get. Incremental testing is more showing this in cohorts. So it analyzes the entire customer journey for a goal like deal created. And it shows you for the cohort that didn't do deal created, these are the touch points. The cohort that did deal created, these are the touch points. And if a user does this touch point, this is the conversion rate influence. So if a user enters the flow, the conversion rate influence, they're like 10 times more likely to convert. I'm glad you explained that to me because that was something that I was trying to build. I didn't have the word in my vocabulary. But that <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. It feels more scientific than just, you know, taking the pie, dividing it up and saying like, well, here's the things that happened. And because it was mm -hmm. there, you know, because it was sunny that day, then we're going to give sunniness some credit to take a silly example yeah. versus actually comparing with and without. It feels more scientific that way. Yeah, exactly. And you can also take different approaches. So... For example, instead of just looking at SDR email sent, you can look at SDR emails being replied to and how they influence revenue so that even if teams get credit, they can get credit for more meaningful activities. And those replies, are you pulling those in through Salesforce to integrate with some of the outreach tools like SalesLoft or Outreach? We get it from Salesforce. from Salesforce. Okay. Super interesting. We've alluded a few times to Visible. They're kind of the legacy player. There is another sort of group, I guess, of more modern tools out there. You know, there's your dream data, your caliber mind, your rent metrics. I'm throwing out a few. I'm assuming you compete with all of them in deals. How do you... I have never actually been a customer of any of, of those, by the way, besides, besides Visible. So I'm familiar with them in a general sense, but not necessarily uh, deep in as a user. 
How do you position yourself against those other players that are a bit more modern than visible? Or is it really just visible, you know, nine times out of 10 that you're running up against? Caliber Point, we don't really run into it. Team Leader, we run into Team Leader. Team Leader is an amazing company, amazing founders, good sales team based in Denmark. Team Leader is the cheapest solution in our category. Usually it's 3x cheaper. Well, then hockey sacks based on templates. It's more, we have a customer that switched from Dream Leader recently. I'm using their words. It's most, it's more like a data connector than a true like reporting platform. So you have templates, you have clean data, but then you can define your own properties. You can change things on the reports. You need a BI tool to export all the data into a BI platform and then a BI team to change it. While hockey stack, we are kind of approaches the full circle from cleaning to measuring to sending the data back to platforms like ad platforms as offline conversions from to forecasting to budget recommendations we are a core infrastructure for the marketing team and operations team i was watching one of your uh, can you dashboarded videos which is a really cool content series by the way but it did appear to me like Thank a you. very flexible almost bi like interface that you've created are there any limitations or can people really just you know metrics, dimensions, filters, mishmash, whatever they want that's in the data store in that interface? There's really no limitations. The only limitation would be kind of like changing something on Salesforce through a hockey stack. So changing a report, overriding a report, overriding a metric. But you can build your own metrics using combination of Salesforce, marketer, and website on hockey stack. So you can build your own goals. There's no limitation. As I said, the only limitation would be overriding data from coming from the platforms. And you mentioned bringing in Snowflake data. Like, do I need Looker if I have hockey stack? Like, could I actually put you on top of finance data or other sorts of data and mix and blend in ad hoc ways? So, for all marketing and sales reporting, you can use hockey stack, but Looker companies use it for HR, for like more, and for other departments. So, we don't really get into that, but we send data back to Snowflake, send data back to BI tools and get data from Snowflake for financial data. Okay. In other words, I guess what I'm driving, let's say restricting it to the marketing and sales use case, can I pull in any ad hoc Snowflake tables that I want or there's like specific tables that you're yep. tuned up to accept? Any table. Any table. You're also one of the first, I think the first, the first vendor and as far as I know, the only vendor that I've seen that has incorporated self-reported attribution. And this was another kind of big I mean, self-reported attribution is not necessarily anything new. We were doing it at a company I was at, you know, 10 plus years ago, but Chris Walker, I think really made it very popular and attractive for people as an alternative to only using digitally tracked attribution and as a way to access all the things that are unknowable, you know, the dark social, the communities, the podcasts in some cases. Talk to me about the self-reported attribution aspect. How does that get broaden and how do you connect that to the digitally tracked data? Yeah, before I answer this, I want to take a few steps back because this is a question that we get often. Companies sometimes, we, we are getting less and less because I think we are doing a good job at educating the market, but sometimes, especially a couple months ago, we were getting a lot more stuff like, this is pretty cool, but what what about dark social? And the company is a true enterprise company with no dark social touch points, no LinkedIn, no podcast, nothing. But they still ask about that because I believe for, because your final apps and they did a good job at this. But like these touch points is like the dark social touch points, as we call them. You can still check most of it and we can talk more about it. But the problem is the way people think is they're comparing dark social with the web activity that we are collecting. And with the web activity, we can see who did it, when they did it, and how that influenced revenue. The key part, key differentiator is when they did it. 
So you cannot know when they listen to a podcast, but I guarantee you if they came from a podcast, they would tell you on that sales call and we can get it from Gong. I guarantee you if they attend an event that you cannot track with Salesforce, you probably can track it if it's an offline event or whatever, but for some reason you didn't you didn't collect that. I'm guaranteeing you that they will mention that event on a sales call or in your software attribution form and we will be able to collect it. The only thing that we can't do is when they did that podcast listen. And it doesn't really matter when they listen to a podcast because in the end, if they listen to a podcast matters. So I think dark social narrative is incredible for the marketing community. But for the measurement site, it cannot be an excuse to not measure your marketing. Like it's dangerous for you as a marketer because in the end, if you cannot prove your contribution to revenue, it's your job on the line. You cannot just say we're doing dark social, so it's measurement is we can't measure anything. It's not going to work with your board, with your CMO, with your CFO. The dark social is incredible for driving demand, but I think we should still think about measurement. I'm not just saying this because we are a vendor in this space, because I'm generally caring about marketing and marketers because I'm a marketer at heart. I built all of our strategy myself. And then with Obed and Drew. For dark social, we are getting software attribution form submissions and categorizing them from the forms with our script on the website. And with Gong, we can do if you're tracking certain mentions, we are getting those from Gong and adding them to the journey and then adding them to the reports. For example, someone mentions recently sponsored Exit 5 community. We got a couple deals that day. And if they mention Exit 5 on a Gong, on it's like sales call, Gong sends it to AkiSec and then on Akisai, you can see these companies, their self-attribution form where they mention Exit 5 and these are all the other touch points. Do you bring them together? Like one of the things we've tried to do internally with our own kind of homegrown solutions is take the self-reported that we're collecting and then compare it to the digitally tracked for the same users. So we can kind of see like, all right, they looks like they're coming from Google, but actually they're saying LinkedIn or podcast or whatever it is they're saying. Are you able to mash it up in that way? Yeah. Because we get the user's email from Gong and then we have the previous activity, uh, we can match them together with the email and with the account. Let me ask you this, and this is maybe coming out of left field, but you seem to be innovating from a product perspective at a very rapid rate. This is a common thing for smaller companies. The Gong integration, I don't think Visible will ever be able to deliver that. If they did, it would be like a five-year project problem. So I don't mean to to hit on the visible thing is a great company, but just a fact of existing inside this huge gorilla of Adobe, even though they have probably 500 times the resources that you do, what are the, what are the dynamics yeah. that enable you to deliver those features quickly and why, why can those big companies not compete if you have a perspective? I think it's the DNA, DNA of the company. From the very beginning, we are an engineering heavy R&D focused company. Product is our key focus. More than marketing, more than sales, we are spending more time and more money on our product. We are spending the most amount of money on our engineers and engineering team and R&D and testing, experimenting. And I think it's because of our founding team, me and my co-founders are focused on engineering and our investors too. We are Y Combinator backed company. We have YC's DNA and YC has been the first investor of Airbnb, Stripe. There's like engineering heavy, innovative companies, Twitch. DoorDash, Instacart, all of these companies have been funded by Y Combinator and it's a pretty hands-on experience for three months that we recently went through. So I think that has an effect too. But I think, I believe that even if you have the best marketing and best sales teams, if the product doesn't deliver, you will be successful, but you will end up with a massive amount of churn. So that's 
kind of the biggest reason that we innovate as much. I've seen that happen. And so the challenge is like Visible was an innovative company in the beginning. And I worked with them and it was Aaron and Dave and all those people. And they were successful. And as a result of being successful, they were acquired. And now the product formerly known as Visible, it's not Visible anymore, Marketo Measure, whatever they call it, stays mostly the same. Do you fear that that will happen to you? Or like, do you have a plan to prevent that? Or do you think like, you know, if that happens after an exit, like you've done your work, you can't control that. How do you think about that as a founder? <laughs> uh, as long as we are not fired, I think that would be a problem as long as our board doesn't fire us. I'm not really scared of that because I think that's always going to stay in our DNA. The only thing that can slow us down might be kind of like fine-tuning those features. So we have some big features like marketing modeling, lift reports, incrementality reports. Is dashboard builder while we are fine-tuning them while we are working on them we might be slower than usual but it's going to be our core focus all the time forever talked a bit about incrementality but then there's also marketing mix modeling which is a concept i've been learning about maybe just over the past few months i think it's more common in b2c it's pretty foreign for b2b at least until recently so yeah maybe introduce listeners to this topic and how you're planning to integrate it and how it will sit alongside your existing feature set yeah, as you said, marketing modeling has been used in B2C for a very long time. It's not been very popular in B2B. So marketing modeling doesn't depend on web activity. It depends on platform activity and different metrics like spend, impressions, and other key metrics that we pull from different platforms. It allows you to see historic data and create correlations between the platform data and your spend in like offline channels like billboards, events and add platforms and then create correlations between those key metrics to revenue and then model data that way instead of relying on website activity. It's been used by B2C because B2Cs have more data. For marketing modeling to work, you need a lot of data points so that you can create correlations. We are choosing that to our enterprise segment to start with, and we are experimenting with a couple of mid-market companies. I think we will be able to make it work for mid-market too. It's going to support other features in the sense that it's going to look at the more broader historic data and we'll be able to incorporate more offline data. So to make a real example of this, we'll take we'll take a silly example then maybe a real B2B example, but silly example might be trying to sell breakfast cereal. You're selling Cheerios and you put, go out with a big TV buy and you're showing commercials. And so you, t you plot that Tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. You plot that chart of here's how much I'm spending on commercials in these markets. And then you look at sales in those markets and see if there's like a trend line that correlates, that moves together. Is that how it works? Yeah. So imagine an attribution report. You will look at website visits. You will look at where they clicked on, what they did on the website, and did they turn into revenue. With marketing modeling, you will look at this is how much we spent. This is how many clicks did we get the CTR, CPC, impressions. And then you basically choose three or four different metrics and your main goal can be contact sales. And it says basically last quarter, we saw an increase in impressions in this platform, saw an increase in spend, saw an increase in engagement. And this resulted in this change in revenue and change in core metrics in the same time period. So it's more correlations between the data. So this works in massive amounts of data, massive amounts of spent, because for example, B2Cs, as you also know, they're not really into optimizing, they're into spending more. So like a Shopify store would spend more to get more leads because it's cheap than optimize most of the time. So if they spend like $100 million in a year, they can just do like an attribution report with linear model and then 
divide k into all of the touch points, they're more looking into correlations. And so let's take a common B2B tactic, retargeting or display ads, something that I might receive, you know, a dozen impressions from those ads. I might not click on them, but they could be having an impact on me. And then this is very difficult to measure because if I show up through organic search on your website and buy something and you say, did those display ads do anything? We don't know. They were just impressions in the mind of the user. This would be a way of getting at that mm -hmm. problem because we can say, well, look, we're seeing more people come in and it seems to be correlated with this spend. Exactly. Because it looks at the same time periods and also I mean, we are still experimenting with it, it's still new, but I think we're going to see success more in engagement metrics, in platform engagement, in platform content consumption and how that relates to revenue. Because most of these platforms like LinkedIn, content consumption is huge because people don't log into LinkedIn to book a demo, but they consume content. And I think marketing modeling is going to give marketers a new way to measure that influence. And an exciting project that we are running is tying social activity back to revenue with marketing modeling, which is something that I'm super excited about. Because we can actually tie kind of like follower engagement, follower increase, company page increase, and individual team members' follower increase and engagement increase to be back to revenue. That's very cool. Yeah, what, one of your competitors did something similar, but it was it was only for company profile pages, and you know the vast majority of engagement happens with like I don't follow your company page, but I follow you. You know, bad. So if you figured out What's a way that? to uh, Dream Data, they released something where they can. They bring in the company page interactions into their system. Yeah, you can get company page interactions with the LinkedIn's API. With the API, yeah. But um, so there's no API for the individual pages. So if you can solve for yeah. that, that would be super cool. Yeah, I think we still have time until more and more companies understand this influence of social. I saw a news about Cisco educating tens of thousands of people and Cisco's team about LinkedIn Social, as we see more and more companies like this moving towards engaging their team members in LinkedIn Social, then we will be there to measure its influence. Hey, I'm super excited about what you guys are doing. It's a lot of fun. I hope you're having as much fun as it looks like on the outside, because it looks like you're having a blast uh, and building a cool company. I do. And a cool product. I will continue to watch it closely, and I'm really appreciative of you spending time with me today. Hey everyone, I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.